Salutations, and welcome to the Harlots of History podcast, where we scorch the history books and take back the word harlot one episode at a time. This is a show for the curious listener, the raunchy feminist, the sex-positive comic, co-hosted by us, your resident amateur historians who love a side of sexy with their history. Listen as we chat and lecture each other on infamous mistresses, lovers, sex workers, courtesans, madams, vamps, sirens, scam artists, and of course, harlots. And we try not to get too sidetracked with rants about putrid patriarchy. I'm Kara Mia, a mom of three. And I'm Emily, a fur mom of three. So go grab your pork rinds or your kale chips. A glass of wine or a big old mug of tea. We're not judging. We will keep you entertained while you wash your dishes, wash your feet, or wash that man right out of your hair. This show also contains alcohol, some very colorful language, and eyebrow raise, sexual content, and is not appropriate for those under 18. Sorry, not sorry to our children and pets. Hello! <laughs> you are sounding more and more like, I don't want to say a grandma, but like definitely like an English nanny Hello. every time. <laughs> hello. <laughs> right, hello, everyone. Welcome to Harlots of History. Harlots of the modern ages. Harlots of the aughts. Harlots. <laughs> That was so good. That I, was I so good. You should you be really that, proud of yourself. I texted you that like two months ago. I was like, we should call our December Harlots, and then you never but responded. I, but, that, but, but I saw it, and it didn't register like that. You know when you read something, and it doesn't like compute? I should just start sending you voice memos. Yeah, you really should. But well, anyway, so that's Cambia. She's <laughs> wearing a green hat that also has leopard print on it. This mom can never get rid of her her neon and leopard print obsessions. Like I've been phasing, trying to phase it out and I just can't. You anyways, are always wearing like 17 different patterns at once. Always leopard print and stripes, leopard print and polka dots, leopard print stripes and polka dots. They all go. So hot. <laughs> oh, so that, hot. that over there is Emily. She's always overheating. I'm stripping. She's currently unzipping for me. Woo. My own private peep show. <laughs> um, oh wow. My boobs are out. Yeah, but okay, I guess quickly for newskeeping. Um, housekeeping? Emily and housekeeping, sure. I just, I, I'm literally a housekeeper day in and day out in my own home. And me too. That makes me bridal, like, like, ugh, I can't, yeah. Bridal? But, um, you know. Like a bride? Like dun, 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 dun? No, bristle, I guess, is the word I was Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I've okay. been watching so much of, like, British BBC comedy shows that I just, don't know which way is up anymore this way <laughs> like I was like I, I told I literally was like hey Richard I'm gonna go to the grocery store and have a lech a lech around <laughs> like you know you like you I, I've been watching are you practicing for when we all move to England and live in a commune an old western commune that we bought <laughs> in in England uh, I'm going to live with a bunch of sheepdogs. Okay, and Highland cows. And you can live in the house next door. And you can have... As long as, as, long as I get to live somewhere more on the moors, you know, of the wild moors. And I get to uh, just live <laughs> out my best, like... Every morning. Every morning. Dream. Yeah, every morning I will go hide in the moors. And you can go call Heathcliff, like, really loud for me. And I'll jump up. 
I also I also want to just like look at the sea every morning and just be like the sea. I want to I want to have a fight with like my lover and run with my long dresses like out to those big cliffs. Right? Oh my gosh. And, and then, then like and like in your hair just came undone from its ribbon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like guys, Emily and I, we just get so excited. It's like we we literally it's just like Stuff just pours out of our mouth. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I would pick a fight with Matt just so that I could have that, like, makeup on the cliffs. Okay. As we all know, sex outside is never worth it. Yeah. Rocks. Bugs. Sand up your butt. You have bacteria that have endospores. Yeah. Good. Yeah. But really Head quick... Me. Emily and I are really excited for this new year. Um, we just want to thank everyone for kind of coming on this like Naughty Yachts journey with us. We kind of realized we want to, we want, we're doing our last episode for Naughty Yachts, but we kind of realized that this isn't, we loved learning about it, but it's not necessarily the direction we really want our podcast to go in. So we're going to return to our bread and butter, which is um, actual bread and butter while we, while we do this podcast, actual baguette with butter, like just like I had, but yeah, we just, we're going to return to really infamous women in history that have a very sexy component to it. We kind of took harlots to also mean women who challenged any sort of norm, um, especially set by males, but we haven't been receiving the best input or I guess the best, what do we say? About the naughty aunt. So what we've yeah. been getting is that um, we want to, you know, this is a podcast. We started for fun, but also we wanted to deliver. So yeah, what we've been getting is like a lot of mistresses um, of Kings. And, and that's actually what we set out to do originally mm-hmm. pretty much the basis. So I think we're going to be going back to that. So in January, look just get ready. Yeah, just get ready to, for us yeah. to like, we're coming, we're coming in hard. We're going to make yeah, we you, are. we're going to make, our goal is to make you do a spit take every episode. <laughs> is it? I if you mean, haven't done one by now, then I don't know. Right? I, I don't know. I feel sorry for you. <laughs> okay. Um, and what are we, ta- who are we talking about today? Okay. Hey, Karamia. <laughs> hey, Shmemily. What's up? Who is the newest owner of a cookie company? A woman who has hidden her age from the world. Yes, she does have a cookie company. Whose child is named after the theme of her favorite room in her house. Who has a Hello Kitty themed bathroom. Loves rainbows, butterflies, the Tower of Terror, and is the all-reigning Queen of Christmas. I mean, once you said Queen of Christmas, then I know (laughs) what you're talking about. Welcome to Naughty Yachts, Mariah Carey edition. Gasp. Um, So before we started this, I'm going to be honest with you. I did not like Mariah Carey. I thought she was an over-the-top diva with a capital D. And now, well, I still think that. But I also... Double Ds. (laughs) Yeah, double Ds. But I also really respect her. I'm not saying she's perfect. And really, none of our harlots ever are. But I do understand her a little more, which is kind of the goal of this podcast. Admire her and also begrudgingly respect her. Right? Like, I feel like that's been a theme. Oh, that was a weird noise. Yeah. I think one of my favorite Mariahisms is how she calls everything a moment. There are diva moments, fairy tale moments, schmaltz moments, analytical moments. And in this episode, we are going to see a lot of moments. So before cute. we get started, I wanted Mariah, I feel like this whole podcast 
about Mariah. So this episode is not going to tell you if I wanted to tell you everything that's ever happened in her life. This podcast, like we would start our own podcast about Mariah and we don't want to do that. I just want to tell you a little bit about her and about some of the things that I thought were really interesting about her that gives you a little bit more into her life. And some, I also included some interesting moments that we may or may not have remembered from growing up as millennials. Um, but yeah, this podcast is not literally, it's not, I, there are some gaps into it and I included, I included things that I thought were really interesting and just things that would give you guys a little bit more into her life. She released a book in, I believe it was October and similar to Paris where we, there's a lot of stuff we learned about her that we didn't know. So a lot of that, a lot of this is like drawing on what I could get from that book without buying the book. Because <laughs> I'm broke. What? But. You don't, I'll say you don't want Mariah Carey's book on your bookshelf. I don't have a bookshelf anymore. I would literally be the only book I own. And <laughs> I could have been sadder. Oh my God. <laughs> I could have Mariah Carey's book be the only book I own. Okay. So Mariah, no middle name, Carey was born on March 27th in some year in Huntington, New York. <laughs> because Mariah... How do you reach your age? I, well, she, she's... No, is she 30? Is she 90? Who knows? She's basically timeless. The internet, her biographers, David Rose, can't agree on when she was born. Is she 24 or 49? We'll never know. But actually, she was either born... In 1969 or 1970. So, like, it's literally just one year. Oh, but my gosh. No my one- mom was born in 1970. Oh my Sorry. God, your mom is so young. Yeah. Two years older than my brother. <laughs> I just forget that. It's really weird. Uh, so, her mother was a Juilliard-trained opera singer of Irish descent. And her father was an Afro-Venezuelan and African-American aeronautical engineer. Holy crap, does she have a pedigree? Yeah. Like, I'm just, like, I'm not even saying that to be offensive. I'm like, dude, that is, like, lineage. hmm Mariah? Um, I, I come from a stay-at-home mom and a carpenter who I'm very I proud come- of, but it, just, it doesn't sound as good on paper as that does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mariah was the third and youngest child, and unfortunately, her childhood was anything but happy. Mm-hmm. Well, she has given bits and pieces about her life over the years, nobody really knew what she went through until, like I said, her memoirs were released earlier this year. Um, and also a lot of, I think a lot of like reading through her stuff too just made me realize um, what you've talked about on Instagram, but that just like our white privilege. Cause a lot of this stuff was like, it was shocking to me, but also it was like, not shocking, but some of the stuff that she went through was like, Oh my gosh. But also I realized that like it was shocking because I have white privilege and I haven't had to experience that. Mm-hmm. So again, I just want to like say that we're like accountable definitely. For that. Yeah. Um, so Mariah was growing up in a multiracial family in the 1970s Long Island. And her life from the time she was born was really a struggle for her to fit in. So her mother's family had disowned her mother for marrying a black man. And they constantly dealt with re- yeah, they completely disowned her. She constantly dealt with racism from neighbors, so-called friends, police and society in general. Her neighbors were not happy about the status of the interracial family, and they tried everything they could to get them to leave, including setting their car on fire and poisoning their dog. What? Yeah. 
And she dealt with racism on both sides because she felt she wasn't black, quote unquote, black enough to fit in with her father's family. She wasn't white enough to fit in with the neighbors and like the kids in the school because, you know, her siblings and her father were darker and then she was kind of right in the middle. So she really felt like she wasn't getting accepted by either side. She said she struggled because she was blondish and she, quote, felt like a stranger among them, an intruder in my own family. She has told the story. I know. It's, I, yeah, like learning this about her life, like, really makes me understand a lot about her. And again, um, I'm just like, I just think, I just, even just thinking, like, if my kids ever felt like they were a stranger in the family that I've created, like, that's just like so sad and painful to even think about. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Also, I think we should uh, maybe say this, like, at the beginning of every episode, but we, like, speculate about, like, psychiatric stuff in our episodes and we have been a lot more with the aughts but um neither of us are licensed psychiatrists but most of this is coming from what we know and also from our very own personal experiences yes yeah we both experienced some degree of you know abusive relationships and sexual assault as well so that is that is coming from what we know right and definitely yeah and like uh, really we're good let's just go on the record and say it like I have um, experienced pretty severe degrees of mental illness. Mm-hmm. I have been raped twice and sexually assaulted, and I've been in a very abusive um, physical relationship, and it was also extremely mental, mentally and emotionally abusive as well. Mm-hmm. And for and, you, Em, like, you know. Yeah, like, I've also experienced um, pretty strong degrees of mental health problems and I've also been in um pretty controlling emotional emotionally abusive relationships very manipulative relationships as well so I can understand yeah and so Emily and I are sharing this because we want to say when we talk about these women we relate to them on a very personal level Mm -hmm. for some of the things like you know just even like when we were talking about Paris Hilton and we, we even got to talking about revenge porn like, it's kind of sad that, like, almost everyone that you've talked to has experienced some level of revenge porn. But, like, yeah. Emily and I both felt that very deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, mm-hmm. I think, like, I think it's worth that this stuff, at, at some point, like, part of the healing process is being able to, to talk about it, too, and, re- and recognize Definitely. that. So that you're not, yeah. So, um Okay, so she said she felt like she was, like, a stranger among everyone. She told a story in the past about inviting a friend over to her house when she was little. And the girl screamed when she saw her father and started crying because she'd never seen a black person before. Her parents divorced when she was three years old. Her mom worked several jobs to keep a roof over their head. They moved 13 times. When she was a child, and sometimes she said they didn't live anywhere at all. They would stay with a friend of her mom's. Her life as a child was pretty tumultuous. Her brother Morgan and her father were constantly fighting, and they had the police call on them several times, which, of course, was even more terrifying, especially, you know, in 1970s Long Island when there's it's two black men. Um, and in her book, she says, quote, I didn't know if they'd come to save us or kill us. And she was, I think, three years old when this happened. She remembers this. It was Long Island in the 1970s, and two black males were being violent. The parents of the police almost never meant that help had arrived. 
end quote. So one of the reasons that Mariah loves Christmas so much and has actually like turned a lot of her career into her being like the Christmas queen is because she never had Christmas as a kid. She always really wanted to have a really fun festive holiday, but she never got one. So, you know, now, of course, we know her as the queen of Christmas, and she makes sure that every Christmas is over the top so her kids get everything that they want and everything that she wanted as a kid never got, which is understandable. And I know you can. No, that's, yeah. that's, no I'm just like, that's so, that's actually like really cute. Like, yeah, like. I really like, like she- just making Chris, like when you have your children, it's like not even like Christmas, it's the season. And like, I just making it magical for them because it's like when your kids are innocent around Christmas time, it's like the fact that your kids can believe in someone that they've never seen do mm-hmm. the things that they reportedly do. Like, you know, it's just, it's just, it's so cute. It's so cute. And it's so heartwarming and you just want to make like a magical season for them. So it's just like so cute that that, I don't know. I feel like that's a really cute thing <laughs> that she's doing. Yeah. I really like it. I, and it look makes me, yeah, I, I really, really like it. I'm like, I think okay, we're, we're not, we're not, we're not like all about consumer culture either, but we're like, that's, no. cute. that's cute that she wants to. Yeah. And again, like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying Mariah's perfect, but I understand a lot about her and I, I do have to give, like, I do respect her a ton. So Mariah's parents worked really hard to try to land the family in quote, like quote unquote, better, safer neighborhoods. So, but this often meant that they were going into like white neighborhoods. And then that meant that she was just further ostracized by being the only multiracial child in those neighborhoods. She had a tumultuous relationship with her siblings. Her sister once threw hot tea on her, which gave her third degree burns. What? Her aunt, who tried to give her an intervention for her hair when she was younger and ended up burning it with a straightener. Her peers who invited her over to their house in eighth grade for a sleepover only to lock her in a room and scream the N-word at her. And she said in her book, too, I watched an interview with her after her book came out that she said she she said that for the first time in her book. And um, she was in an interview with Trevor Noah, and he was like, why didn't you ever, you know, talk about this? And she's like, you know, I actually didn't remember that this happened until we started, like, talk, like dredging up this stuff in the past. But mostly she was like, I'm I'm sitting here in interviews talking about, like, my book tours and or my, yeah, my book tours and my like CD tours and my records and my Grammys and all this. And she's like, I don't have time to tell people like, Oh, this is what happened to me. It's like almost like it feels like she surrounded herself with so many things that she kind of didn't, didn't I mean, look. It's, it's almost not, Yeah. It's, it's like a lot of us compartmentalize our mm-hmm. youth and that, yeah. that happened to us. I mean, some, it's a survival tool for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And she constantly had this need to be claimed by somebody. And a lot of what I read is kind of like, this is why she has such like a big relationship with her fans. who were called the lambs, but she, this is, you know, why she has this like need to be taken in by people because it's like, she didn't ever get that. Mm. She never fit in anywhere. She just wanted to belong. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's really important to think about that when we consider how we think of her as being a huge diva. And it just seems to be just really like her fulfilling this, you know, basic need for love and support. And it's like feeling like that basic need of like love. That's like your that's the number one thing in like any part of psychology. That's like your first first thing is like knowing your needs are met. And it's like she wasn't getting that. But then it's also like knowing that you have 
your second thing is like knowing you have support. She wasn't getting that either. So it's like, you know, you, yeah. Just really quick again with Paris, she looked mm-hmm. for that sense of belonging with her fans. That's yeah. support with her fans, not friends, not family. That's what I, yeah, exactly. Wow, that's wow. Like, I found a lot of similarities and that's why we really wanted to do these odds. Cause it's just like, I think it's really interesting to look into people, you know, Especially people that like, you know, that were some part of our youth. Yeah. It's like, you're not going to, you don't look into like what happened to them as a kid when you're like 12 and they're your role models. So her sister, Allison turned to sex work to help subsidize income for the family. And she ended up becoming pregnant at 15 and I'm not sure when, but at some point testing positive for HIV. What? Yeah. So, and this is, I think Mariah, I'm not sure how much younger she was, but I think she was she was a good bit younger than her. So she saw this at a really young age and it shaped, it really shaped a lot of the ways that she protected herself and a lot of the ways that she decided to work because, she, and how she kind of like closed herself off. Cause she didn't want to, she didn't want to go that path that her sister had. Again, not that there's anything wrong with no. sex working, but like not, but like doing it in a way where you're not being safe. And also you're so young. Also too, you know, it was like, late seventies, early eighties, you know, HIV was really rampant. And, and I think too, it was like, she, from an early age, she really like, she really wanted to be a star and that was kind of like pushed on her. It was kind of like, I think I'm going to talk about this right now, basically, but she, she began to see music and arts as a state, like as her savior, she threw herself into it. So her mom helped her nurture her voice because her mom was a Juilliard trained opera singer and from the beginning, it was kind of like, Mariah needs to be a singer or she won't make it. Like, it was like, that. you know, they named her Mariah, Mariah Carey. Basically, it was like a star's name. It was kind of like, I feel like her mom kind of pushes on her, like, you need to get out and you need to do this. And it's it's really unclear. Like, I I, I think her relationship with her mom is more toxic. And that kind of comes up in the book. But she talks about over here, like, when she was six there was an incident that happened at her house and she needed to call her like there was no adults and she had to call her mom's friend. And she said she overheard them being like saying, if this child makes it out, it's going to be a miracle. You know, she was six years old when she heard that. So it was just all this pressure and like Missy Elliott music was her only plan. She never had a backup. It was like music. That was it. And she loved it. She was like, was, you know, she, I thought, like saw another interview with her where she was correcting her mom in Italian at like age, like four, her mom singing like opera or I don't know how old she was, but it was really, really young. Like she was like, and she was singing these songs and like she, she has a five, a really rare five octave vocal. Mm -hmm. range. She get the whistle, the whistle range or whatever it's called. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she says, uh, in her book, quote, Live music was the best thing about living with my mother. I was surrounded by the love of music, but even more importantly, by the love of music and ship. Musicianship. There you go. Musicianship. (laughs) The love of the craft, the love of the process. End quote. So she began to work as a demo singer when she was young, like preteens, and she was constantly writing poetry and lyrics and going to Manhattan to record demo sessions until like all hours of the night and then crashing 
you know, at three or four in the morning and getting up at seven to go to school. But she actually, she was going to New York. Yeah. But she actually. Can you imagine doing that in high school? No. I needed my sleep. Oh my gosh. When I was like 15, 16, I needed my sleep and you couldn't take that from me. (laughs) I I always started every day with like a large mug of coffee. She was gone, but she was actually gone from school so often. She like really like high school wasn't important to her because music was her passion. So she like her nickname in high school was Mirage. She was hardly ever there. (laughs) That's cute. Also, I don't know if you agree with me on this. I don't think probably. The quote-unquote, right? I don't think the quote-unquote standard education model works for everyone. No, and I also think that if like your child is showing a really big inclination towards one thing, and it's in your power to let them really study that one thing, I'm not saying like don't let them learn math, don't let them do this, don't let them do that, but like there are a lot of things that we like. Okay, um. Emily, how many hours did you spend in American history only now to realize that like everything that you learned was incredibly racist and that you probably are relearning everything you ever learned that was semi-historical or how many books did we read that were like, um, you know what? We could have spent our time really reading something else. And like, also I haven't used chemistry a freaking day in my life. Like I I haven't used calculus. But like I've seen me personally, I haven't used calculus a day in my life. I'm just saying, I just, I'm not saying like, don't send your kids to school. No, no, but it depends on like, why I have a bachelor's degree in something that is a good foundation, but it's not something I'm going to use. And it was like, cause it was basically, we were told you have to go to college, you have to get a degree. And now it's like, I'm 31 and I'm back in school, you know, be paying my way through school being like well, well i have this degree i'm not gonna use i'm so proud yeah. of you for that thank you <laughs> um yeah no i was thinking about this too because it's like all my classes i'm like you know there's so many things you really don't need to know that i learned you know but yeah. like, i'm just saying i'm just saying i think it's like really cool that she really was like this is what i'm doing this is what i'm doing because honestly she does she did not need the standard school experience to do what she did today stupid. She's like brilliant. She's yeah. like, you yeah, know, I mean, look at Einstein. He dropped out what, like at third grade? Like, it's like, you know, like Matt is really, really, really brilliant. And he didn't even finish high school. That's Emily's and partner. My partner. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like he's, you know, and he's, there's so many other smarts. Yeah. 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 I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I agree with you. Of course, always. So after high school, she moved to New York City, and she lived in a one-bedroom apartment with four other girls. Uh, yeah, I know. My worst nightmare. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, she worked part-time jobs, and she actually did 500 hours of beauty school. And she was continuing with her demos and writing, and she began to be. She started a, to be a backup singer for Brenda Starr, and this is where everything kind of floats the next okay so the next paragraph i'm about to read is loosely based on truth but i also added a little bit of an editorialized version to make it more interesting and also because this story is like really glamorous by hollywood and i think it's not glamour i think it's bullshit so okay in in 1988 tommy matola the president of sony records attended a party for brenda Starr. The party was boring, and he'd only come for a bite of caviar, a glass of Dom, and a photo op for the label. Before he left, somebody slipped him a demo tape into his pocket, and he listened to it on the limo ride home. The voice on that demo tape was Mariah Carey. 
He had the limo drive driver turn the car around and went back to the party, but she was gone. As the story goes, he searched for her for two weeks before he found her. I know, and he's a terrible trash monster. We hate him. We don't like him. This is like also the grossest Cinderella story ever. No, exactly. People call this is why I elaborated on it to show you how stupid it is because people were calling it literally. Yeah, let's have it in the next sentence. People called this a Cinderella story because that's like he searched for her two weeks. And then he said after a battle with these other records, he signed her to Columbia Records, which was like a Sony was a parent company for Columbia. And he was he liked to remind anyone and everyone who would listen to him for the next 10 years and 20 years and 30 years. He launched her career, but like he was just the person that made it happen. She launched her own career. She worked really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't have talent. Like, I have more talent in my left pinky than he has in his whatever, anything. He's, yeah, we don't don't like like him. I don't like his name. No, we don't like him at all. And we'll get into it. Okay. So, yeah, we hate him. He just sounds evil. (laughs) In 1990, Mariah's debut album, so this is, so she got signed in 1988. She was 18 or 19, but most I think, yeah, maybe, I don't know, or 10 or 30, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Um, She was born in 1903. She was actually... Yeah, she survived the Titanic. (laughs) (laughs) She was actually Rose. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Mary would so own the heart of the ocean. Oh, my God, yeah, the heart of the ocean keeps her young. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, um, so by 1990, Mariah's debut album had already been on top of the Billboard 200. I guess it used to be the 200 back then. For 11 weeks in a row, and at the year's Grammy, she won Best New Artist and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. Just a reminder, she was like some age at under 22. <laughs> yeah, she was like 20, 21, 20. Yeah, so pretty soon, Tommy was divorcing his wife of 19 years. And in 1993, in front of an eight-piece orchestra, 50 flower girls, a boys' choir, a 300-person star-studded guest list, he and Mariah were married. So the, this is the yes, this is the very, guy who signed. Very her. like isn't isn't that kind of what like Celine Dion married her? Wasn't she married like oh no she married like her producer or something? She married she married someone in a place of power over her career. My shoulder is killing me, so I have to pour more wine. Okay. Oh god. My shoulder hurts so bad. Uh, all right. <laughs> like nine months of quarantine, my muscles are basically jello. Okay. I literally put on my coat, I threw on my shoulder. Okay. That's nope. where we're at. Uh, th- that sounds about par right now for this year. <laughs> no, I was just saying, Celine Dion married her manager. Okay. And he was yeah. in a big power and she was really young. Well, and that's what, like, I've heard, you know, they were saying on, like, this podcast I listened to. Oh, I forgot to cite them in my sources. Okay. I was saying in this podcast I listened to that in the 90s, they're like, yeah, this is her boss. He's 20 years older than her. Like, isn't the record, you know, it wasn't like now it would be like, um, but back then it was like something that was not really, people didn't really think much about. Um, And I think that's, I think. That's where it was honestly like it was it was still like normalized from like what the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah, and I I really think that like patriarchy really like failed her there because I think that she she could have been more protected. Honestly, and like look at every like fairly famous male musician 
pop star, rock star, they've all had sex with, like, so many of them have had sex with underage girls. It was like, it felt like it was like part of the biz. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, okay. So when they married, he was 45 and she was 24. And, you know, according to Hollywood, this is a Cinderella story. But the reality is much, much darker than that. Tommy was, although he will loudly deny it, controlling, is, I'm going to say is, because those, you're not going to change those, uh, he's, he's, you cannot change those personality traits. You can change some things, but the way he is, yeah, he's not going to change. Controlling, possessive, and conniving man with ties to the mob. And he actually, he really denies the ties to the mob, and they actually, like, I read a really, really good Vanity Fair article that was on him in the 90s and I'll, i'm gonna give you a quote a long quote from that in a while but he when he became the head they were basically like the record was uh like okay this guy i think he has you know ties to the mob because there was like changeover with the record company and like right when they bought this company like he was the head so they got the fbi to look into it and the fbi was basically like well he doesn't have ties to the mob but he has friends who do so it was always kind of like he was in like it's like a level of displacement also really quickly i was just looking at pictures of their wedding i know Mariah carey looks like a freaking angel like i can't believe oh. how much she's like she looks like the most beautiful like 90s 80s 90s bride i've ever seen like i feel like that's what my mom was trying to go for <laughs> no she she watched videos of Charles and Diana's wedding to prepare, which kind of makes her, sense. Oh my gosh. Her bouquet yeah. looks so much like Diana's. It's not even funny. Yeah. Well, and then you kind of, so we'll get into it, but like they had this really huge extravagant wedding and then their honeymoon, they went to Hawaii, which is, there's nothing wrong with Hawaii, but it was like, you could go anywhere in the whole world. And they stayed at Tommy's friend's house. Like they didn't even stay at like a honeymoon suite. So it's kind of clear that this like relationship. And like, she's even said that they didn't really have a physical relationship. It was a, really about control. She was his biggest asset. I mean, and he signed a lot of people. Like he signed a lot of people, you know, he was like a really, he was like the mob boss of Sony. And they even, people have even like credited him for the Latin explosion. And I'm like, well, I don't know how much you can credit like that guy, but he signed, I have actually, I should have brought it. I have a list of like all the people he signed a lot, like pretty much like most of the famous, like, you know, R&B and pop stars you can think of in the nineties. Hold on. Let's get a, yeah, I have it written down. I just saw my notebook out there. I didn't include it because I didn't want to talk about him anymore. He is. Oh my God. Yeah. Signing, developing, and nurturing the careers of Celine Dion, Mariah Carey, Gloria Estefan, Destiny's Child, Jessica Simpson, Shakira, the Dixie Chicks. Yeah. Championing Ricky Martin, Jennifer Lopez, and Mark Antony. Yeah. Worked with Michael Jackson while he recorded his Dangerous album. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Wow. I, I mean, I didn't think he was that a toxic person, but like, no, he is, he is toxic. Yeah. You know, at the time, everyone thought Mariah was living this fairy tale dream. She had 27 feet of wedding gown train and six ladies in waiting to carry it. But in her own words, she was a child bride. 
So, and like I said, for the wedding, which has also been described as a coronation, she watched tapes of Charles and Diana's wedding to prepare, but it was kind of like, she was really like forced into this. Like she wasn't, she didn't really have an out. Like she, it was like, you know, it was her whole career and he had a ton of power and he was scary guy, terrifying guy. And so she tells a story in her book about a fight that she and got Tommy got in on their honeymoon, something about some like press manager. They had like their press person there with them on their honeymoon. And so again, it was like, it wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. So they got this huge fight because he was like screaming at this press person. What's the press manager? Boss? What's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have one. (laughs) we'll get there we'll get there so she like she so they get in this fight she runs out of the house down the beach and she goes to this beach bar she's like i i just need a drink like my honeymoon sucks this guy is a monster to get a daiquiri but she couldn't even like pay for the daiquiri because she didn't she had to call her manager and basically have them like authorize this payment and like release funds to her for this drink it's just a drink over the phone yeah and, you know, at this time, she was a huge celebrity. She'd basically been like, she'd already won Grammys and she couldn't even go pay for a drink. And that really, I think, like, that was really eye opening for me to see how controlling this relationship was. It just makes you wonder, like, the, the sometimes when we crave the riches of someone that we see in magazines, like, how much is it really theirs? You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, after the wedding, Mariah and Tommy moved into their $10 million, 20,000 square foot estate. She had a booming music career. She was topping charts, winning awards, and her husband was a top level executive to the outside eye. They were living the good life. But Mariah actually coined this place Sing Sing because to her, it was her own prison. And, you know, it's like everyone can look at this house and be like, oh, she, she, but like, it's just, it gives me chills when she talks about it. So I'm going to, I'm just going to read to you, you know, how much I love Vandy Fair. I have a lot of really long quotes from articles that I read about them that I just felt like were really good and encompassed a lot of stuff. So this is a long passage from Vandy Fair. I believe it was a cover story. It was a pretty big spread on Tommy Matola from 1996. It's called Tommy Boy. <laughs> so this is just, it, it'll paint a picture. So quote. His middle is bulging the confines of his pressed linen safari jacket and his slick black Sick, sorry, slicked back black coif is sitting too. He's sensitive about both, friends say, as a middle-aged man with an idolized young wife is apt to be. Which may help explain why Mariah's under wraps. She won't be talking, Tommy announced, the smile evaporating. It's not good for her. It's not good for me. It's not good for the company. I know. Whether Miss Matola participated in these uh, calculations, he does not disclose. Sorry, I have to take a sip. My mouth is really dry. But from the gossip that she exits the big house in the suburbs only after checking with Tommy, and then with a chase car always trailing, it seems unlikely. It's got two pawns, neighbors such as Ralph Lauren and Stanley Jaffe. Jaff? No. Mm -hmm. A kitchen the size of a bocce court. He's so, he's so spoiled me with his food that I can't go to restaurants anymore, Mariah gushed to a Tommy Cleared interviewer. So many rooms, Mariah's not sure of the number. A subterranean shooting range equipped with an arsenal of rifles, pistols, and shotguns. Color surveillance cameras secreted in birdhouses. 
And overlooking an indoor swimming pool surmounted by a cloud-painted ceiling, a state-of-the-art 64-channel recording studio. This elaborate facility, says a friend, just about eliminates the need for Mariah to ever go into New York. End quote. This is so, scary. I know. I know. And it just really... Like, it's like, I remember seeing things about, like, Mariah's house. I mean, I, I'm not back when I was 90 that time, because I was, like, I don't know, a couple, like, five. But I just really, like, she was in this, like, hell for a really long time, and no one knew. I mean, they knew, like, these, these were rumors in 96. Like, people knew the rumors, mm-hmm. but I think it was, like, no one was really... Everyone was like, yeah, but I feel I feel like people are probably like... Oh, well, you know, at least she has everything she could possibly ever want. Like, how bad could her life be? Yeah. Yeah. You people didn't realize. Yeah. So in her book, she talks about having a to-go, a go-back, always at the ready under her bed. She would get up in the, a A go-back. bag. Okay. So she, like, it was hidden under the bed. She had, like, stuff that if she needed to go, she would get up in the middle of the night. Like she would wait till he was sleeping. She would watch him asleep, get up in the middle of the night. She would go downstairs for a snack or whatever, just have her alone time and like have some time by herself. And his voice would come through the intercom. Like what you doing? So it's like, he would wake up and he had this intercom and uh, it just like creeps me out. that Like I'm already kind of hypervigilant, but it's like, so when asked later, if this, she was asked, if this experience made her stronger, which I kind of like, if, you know, of course it was like a male reporter, which I understand what he was saying, but also I just think that's like, it's also like, I can get why you think that question's icky because it's like, but then it's, it's, he's kind of saying, well, if you became stronger, then he made you stronger by challenging you and by doing, yeah. Yeah. yeah I can see why you find that question icky. Cause I do too. Yeah. And this is her response. Yes, but it also wounded me. When you have to control your own emotions constantly and be aware of every move you make and pretty much ask permission to exist, it affects your life. Mm-hmm. Which I, I, I just, yeah, I really like the way that she answers things and talks about things because it just, I don't know. I, I, I like, I, it's very I frank. I, it is really frank. I don't know. I, I definitely respect her after this. What's happening? There's like colors. Oh, sorry. My, the TV was like paused on uh, Netflix and now it just like the TV, like the the, Xbox just turned off. Okay. Okay. So while the rumors, which let's be honest, were not actual rumors. They were actually true things happening. were running rampant in Hollywood. The true extent of what Mariah went through was never really known. And again, what I read you was just, was written in 1996, but it seems that like no one really did anything about it. So after some pretty public fights, including Tommy canceling Thanksgiving, there's like this thing in her book about, you know, they're out with friends and someone I think was, uh, yeah, P. Diddy. They were asking about asking her what she thought of him. And Mariah was really big in the hip hop world. She did a lot of like collabs and she loved hip hop. She always listened to it when she was growing up. So they had someone asking him, like, what do you think of P. Diddy? And then it was like Tommy got really pissed off. And then he came up to her and he was like yelling at her in public and was like, Thanksgiving's canceled. And her response is something like, oh, who's going to tell all the turkeys? <laughs> who's going to tell everyone <laughs> Thanksgiving's canceled? And I just like, I just really, I don't know. I really like her. So, and you know, the combination of an abusive relationship, they ended up getting divorced in 1997. 
So as you and I both know from experiencing controlling and emotionally abusive relationships, there is a reason that we weren't hearing about this from Mariah, you know, until like we were hearing, she was saying it was controlling, but we were only hearing so much. And I think a lot of the times you have to really like come to terms with the fact that it was an abusive relationship before you can outwardly express it. Mm-hmm. And she's in her book and this quote really, it like hits me in the gut. And I think it'll, it'll do the same for you. So quote, it's not that there are no words. It's just that they still get stuck moving up from my gut where they disappear into the thickness of my anxiety. Wow. Right. Yeah. It's like it. Wow. It's like, I, wow. I understand. Yeah. It's a very visceral. Like I, I understand. Yeah. So, yeah. So after their divorce, Mariah felt like a free new woman. And her albums were more sexual, more sensual. Her album number, her album number ones, sold a million copies in the first week of Japan in Japan in 1988. No, that's just really cute. Yeah, so I just like she was like a, um, you know, she was like a free woman. She was like a new woman, and she was the only international artist ever to do this. She moved to Virgin Records after like a year or two after the divorce because he was still the head of Sony, and like she had to finish out this contract. Mm-hmm. Her contract for Virgin Records was a hundred million dollars, and but she produced like her first and only record for them, which was uh, Glitter. And she also had a movie that came out, and I was gonna watch it, but I was like, it's like really, it really flopped. Yeah, it's it's kind of about her life. Like it sounds like because it, it's like a, the young artist who is in a really controlling relationship. Like that's, but it really flopped. And around this time, she had this infamous. "Quote unquote breakdown." So, uh, all right, guys, uh, we had a lot to say about Mariah. It turns out, and so once again, we are going to split this into a two-part episode. So, thank you for joining us for part one, and we will be releasing part two on Thursday, Christmas Eve. Oh yeah, it's so appropriate that the Christmas Queen goes into Christmas Eve. That is actually really perfect. We planned and- it like that. Hey, Emily, you want to do a happy harlot? Sure. Do you want me to start or do you want to go? No, you go. Okay. So my happy harlot is today, it just has been raining nonstop. So we tried to go to the snow this week and it was raining. And I'm like, I love the snow. I love the rain. It's really hard to do when they're together successfully. So today we were like, it's still raining. You know what? We're just still going to go out. And we try the playground. My kids were like shooting off the slides. Like <laughs> they were greased up. Like they were like landing like 10 feet beyond the slides. So I was like, ah, okay. So then we actually just ended up going down to the, the beach of like Sammamish and it was completely deserted. And that beach is crawling. Remember that's the beach where Ted Bundy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, manipulated one or two of his victims. Yeah. So we, uh, went to the, we went to the water and there was all these rivets and my kids were just like splashing like crazy and like rolling around and like getting up really close with some ducks, but it was just so cute. Like the kids just kind of were really bummed that the playground didn't work out. And then they ended up just like literally playing in muddy puddles for an hour by the oh, lake. It was so amazing. I want to yeah. play in muddy puddles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my happy harlot is, um, Matt and I decided, well, we were supposed to go to my mom's today and we couldn't. So we decided to go 
drive up to the mountains. Um, and we didn't go too far. We went up, we went into Boulder because it was like noon when we decided to go. And, you know, it gets dark at like four. Mm-hmm. So we went up and we drove up Flagstaff, which is like a really high and really scary road. It was also, it was scary going down because I need new brakes. And my brakes were like <laughs> shuddering. Um, but it was really pretty. We just kind of drove. We didn't, we had the dog with us. So we didn't really get out because it was like, 10 degrees and a wind chill of like 50 miles an hour and we're up in the mountains but it was like really pretty to be up in the trees and the flag stuff super high so you could literally see i think for it's like hundreds of miles you could I see like you took pictures i didn't because it, it's everything is brown everything's brown right now and dead so it was like just a bunch of dead things on the ground yeah. like dead leaves and stuff no it's pretty it's so pretty yeah I know, but I've been up there a million times, and I, that was totally like my makeup makeout spot in high school. And <laughs> I, <laughs> it's like a ter- that's like the, that's like the makeout spot for kids. It's like a terrible spot because it's like really, 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 that really wide. Just like road. release the like parking brake, and you're gone. <laughs> I've been like drunk up at the top of that. I didn't drive. We had a designated driver. Thank God. Always have a designated driver. But anyway, it was just really fun to go up there and it was like a really pretty drive and we didn't really ended up like going out but um it was nice to get out and just be in nature we like rolled down the windows and breathed in the air and you know it's like so fresh and it was just nice it was a nice drive sounds really nice it was pretty okay guys well thanks so much for joining us for mariah part one and we will see you for mariah part two bye If you don't show up, (laughs) we don't know you. (laughs) Hi, Harlots. We just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to Harlots of History. If you like what you heard today, please go and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so we can keep bringing you more salacious, scandalous Harlots. Our music is Nia Proxis, Frank Riddick by Lloyd Rogers from freemusicarchive.com. And our cover art and editing is by us. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> we love suggestions, tips, tricks, or just salacious details you think are interesting. So please reach out to us on Instagram at Harlots of History Podcast or on Twitter at History Harlots or email us at Harlots of History Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, be a harlot, not a hater. Bye. Bye.